What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew 3 Project. And if you missed our Pastors and Leaders Conference, Preaching in the Culture, you missed a treat. It was a phenomenal time. And we want to give you a glimpse into the conversations that happened. One of the conversations was living a life that doesn't undercut the message. And this was with some veterans in the ministry world, Dr. Horace Smith, uh, Dr. Cynthia James, and Reverend James. Meeks. Um, we are so excited to bring you this conversation. And if you want to go back and watch the conference on demand and see all the amazing lectures and hear all the amazing conversations from people like Esau McCauley, Charlie Dates, Charles Goodman, Quiniquia Day, myself and others, you can register for on demand at preachingincculture.com. Well, without further ado, let's get into this amazing conversation moderated by Watson Jones. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. This conversation today is a conversation on a life that doesn't undercut the message. And uh, we are really excited to have with us today uh, three brilliant minds who are here to provide wisdom for us as preachers and pastors. Um, there, there's a lot of wisdom on this line and great longevity in ministry. We have Dr. Cynthia James here. We have uh, my pastor, Reverend James Meeks here. And we have Bishop Horace Smith, MD, here, and they are going to be our conversation partners as we talk about a life that does not undercut the message. Before we begin, I, I want to toss it to all three of you, whoever wants to jump out at this first. Please give us just a little bit of background about yourself. I've already given your names, but tell us your name. Tell us where you serve, uh, your ministry history, and your years in preaching and pastoring. Well, I'll jump right in since I'm your pastor. My name is Pastor James Meeks, and I'm the pastor of the Salem Baptist Church of Chicago. I started preaching January the 5th, 1975, which means that I've been preaching Happy now anniversary. for 47 years. Yeah, thank you. Happy anniversary. I've been a senior pastor. I've been a senior pastor for 37 years of those uh, 47 years. It's been a uh, delight and uh, my life's joy to be entrusted to pastor the people of God and then to pastor the people of God for uh, 37 years is a highlight and a joy. And so I look forward to us uh, sharing together. I'm so excited to be on the panel with these esteemed uh, pulpiteers and I can't wait until our conversation starts. I'm reluctant to go next, um, but my name is Cynthia James. I've been uh, in ministry 44 years and uh, in pastoral ministry and assignment for 40 of those years. I'm currently associate pastor, all the other times were senior pastor at the Potter's House in Dallas. Um, and I have a short memory, so you have to remind me what else I should say uh, other than that kind of brief introduction. No, that's all right. Your years, your years you've been doing this. 
Oh, I think I kind of said 44 nice. years in ministry, yeah. 40 years um, <laughs> in pastoral ministry, but the last 10 years or nine and a half years have actually been as an associate uh, pastor here in Dallas, the Potter's House. Exciting. Thank you. Thanks for including me among such esteemed persons. Thank you, Dr. James. I guess I'm next. That's you. Yeah, my name is uh, Horace Smith. Uh, I pastor the Apostolic Faith Church in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I've been the senior pastor here since March 28, 1980. You can do the math on that. It'll be 42 years, the Lord willing, uh, this coming March. Um, and I love what I do. Uh, and I'm glad to be on this esteemed uh, panel uh, with young pastors uh, hearing us. And I hope we'll be a blessing to them. Amen. Thank you I all. I thought you were going to say a panel I'm, with young pastors. Waffle. I was going to say, he yes. gets my vote. Okay. <laughs> yes, and pastor. I'm sorry because I have actually been a senior pastor for 42 years. And it wasn't until Horace said 1980 until it dawned on me. I started pastoring right. in 1979. And so I've been a senior pastor for 42 <laughs> years. I pastored the Salem Church for 37 years. All right. That's where the thirty-seven comes in. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Um, well, let's let's jump right in. Um, Aristotle talks a lot about the available means of persuasion: uh, logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos being the arrangement of our sermons or our discourse; pathos meaning the emotional appeal appeals that we make in the preaching moment, and ethos being the congregation's perceived character, what they understand our lives to be. And he would say that our characters Im would impact how people receive or hear or believe what we say. Um, there are many people who would fall on the line on that conversation. My question for you guys today is this, do you believe that your life, our character as preachers, as pastors, do you think our life can impact the power of our message or hurt the power of our message? If so, why or why not? Whoever wants to jump in. Well, I feel every silence, if you ask my husband, probably to a fault. But um, <laughs> without just relying on platitudes uh, that people you know, do what we do rather than what we say and going beyond that, I would strongly agree. And even beyond, going beyond just uh, giving certitudes from scripture in terms of being living epistles, I think it's incumbent upon us to recognize that there is a message that is most persuasive. It's persuasive, and that's often what people see and uh, what they observed when we're not aware that they're observing us. And that it's extremely important to keep an ethical edge uh, and to mm -hmm. cultivate a character that does display honesty legitimately, that is a character of integrity, and not to assume that that's gonna happen automatically because we turned our collar backwards. That's good. I would echo the same thing. Um, you know, those three values that you talked about uh, are so powerful. Uh, and we certainly need the, the issue of the logos, the, the understanding of words and, and how we frame them. Uh, and to appeal to a person's soul, you've got to uh, appeal on a level that draws them in. But I think that rightly so, um, we must be very careful uh, in these generations that uh, our character should outshine uh, the other two. Uh, I would attribute any success that, that my wife and I have had in ministry is that because, you know, people trust us 
and, and trust is earned over a period of time. Um, and again, I think uh, God has given us the grace to understand that people want to see the word lived out. Dr. James talked about the uh, living epistles. And so I think, I think it is really important uh, when so much information is available and so forth that your character should carry the day. And I think that we should talk more about this. Uh, even in our uh, training in seminaries and other places, we need to really talk about that whole piece and emphasize to people that it is how they see you. Your reputation precedes you. Uh, people will come to your church, I think, initially because of other gifts, but they won't stay if they don't trust you. That's right. Uh, I think that it's not a whole lot to add to that, Watson, other than the fact that a bald-headed man cannot sell hair tonic. <laughs> Neither can a blind man sell glasses. That's right. You have to be about what you are talking about, and people have to believe that you believe it, and people have to believe that you follow your own message. And as Dr. Smith said, it's over a period of time when people are with you that they will know whether or not that you believe what you speak about or whether you embody what you speak about. The pastor who does embody it and is a man strong in character, you tell somebody, I'll be at the hospital to pray for your mother or two. They got their whole family there waiting for you. And here it is, 430, and you haven't even called to say you had a flat. So character, character uh, goes before the other two. I totally agree with Dr. Smith on this. I think something else that plays into that, it's not really far, Ken, and that is people know it's doable. Um, sometimes we talk about a Christian life and it sounds like it really is above reach, but it, but it shows in a practical way that if I can do it, you can do it, that this is livable, that it's not all theoretical, but that it is something that you can access, the strength that comes from really trying to live out the word daily. That's good. That's good. Thank you, guys. Uh, I want to, I really like this conversation about ethical edge um, that uh, Dr. James mentioned here. When I think about uh, some of what if we've seen in the last few years, and we also hold this in conversation with the, the people that, um, Jude 3 and Lisa Fields specifically works with. She does a podcast called Why I Don't Go, which is conversations that come from young adults who gave up on church and they give different reasons. Well, we've seen in the last few years, uh, different pastors who have been called to the carpet or have, have even fallen away or gotten in trouble, primarily not even because of uh, like money or, or, or cheating, but personality stuff like uh, mm. uh, uh, the Christianity Today podcast talks about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, personality, abrasiveness. Um, let me ask you this. What are there some personality traits that preachers need to watch out for? Uh, and if so, what are these things? And then I got to follow up on that, but I'll kind of let, let us jump this around for a second. Not everybody at one time, please. <laughs> Let me make a little stab at that. Um, I think all of us on this call are familiar with the book uh, by uh, McIntosh and Reamer called um, Overcoming the Dark Side of Leadership. Um, none of us are perfect. We preach a gospel of grace. Uh, we understand that, but for God's goodness, 
we could not even serve. And so I think that the, the character traits and, and the, the dynamics of being called to Christ as a Christian, you understand that we are flawed, should always inform leadership. And I think the higher you go, the more important that is. Um, to embody uh, humility and grace and the things that really brought us to the Lord Jesus Christ, I think are the things that are going to keep us. All of us have a dark side, and we, we understand that. Uh, and so trying to keep up with who we are beyond our titles. You know, I, I'm in this whole thing now about I don't trust titles anymore. And in the Pentecostal church, you know, I'm, I'm always hard on us. You know, everybody's a bishop. Everybody's an archbishop. Everybody's a, you know, whatever. And, and there really is no ethics to who we really are. Right. So I think that um, we have let down in some ways uh, people in general, young people, if we don't live out, as uh, Dr. Meek said, what we talk about, I always say that it's hard to sell a product that you don't use. And so I try in my ministry, I'm not always perfect in it. I try to make sure that I never ask the people to do what I'm not already doing. That I'm uh, actually doing it. Dr. James said that I, it can be done. And so the, they trust what you say because the authenticity of the gospel is seen in the vessel that God uses. So I'm always trying to be aware that we have character flaws. I know we'll have time a little bit later to talk about, you know, what things can you put in place to keep you grounded? Uh, all of us who have risen so, so, so much in the ranks of Christianity is each to believe uh, your cheering, your section, you know, your, your fan base, all those things. But we are all human beings, uh, flawed at the best. And so if we forget those things, I think we become very vulnerable to what you said, character traits, um, leadership styles, that really are almost the opposite of what we try to portray uh, as the portrait of Jesus Christ. Bishop, I know I you alluded to that, it. Watson, I'll go ahead, Pastor. What young people... I think that what young people need to understand who come to our churches is that we preach a perfect message about a perfect Christ. We are not that Christ. That's right. And we are not the personification of perfection. The only place people will find perfection in, the only place that people will ever put their hope in and never be let down is in Christ Jesus. So we try to teach people not to put your hope and your trust in the voice of the preacher. That's number one. Number two, the whole thing about the rise and fall of Mars Hill and uh, the abusiveness of a pastor. I hope it is clear in the Salem church and I have expressed it over and over that if a gunman walks in this room right now with a gun saying, I have to shoot and kill one individual in this room Everybody knows that my hand is the first one to go up. I'll say, shoot me, kill me, preserve everybody else. And I try to do that because I don't ever want people to think that I lord over them or that I would not give my life for them. Jesus said a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I look at the congregation as the sheep. If I am the shepherd, then I will lay down my life. So if that's your attitude or mentality, then you don't have a mind concept that you are lording over them 
or you're serving them. A, a pastor is the chief servant. And if everybody in there feels that our pastor is here to serve us, then I don't think that the Mars Hill type reputation could ever come upon any, any of us. Well, I'm really in a dilemma already. <laughs> We're just getting started on several things. One is I'm trying to sort out in my mind the difference between personality traits and then character traits. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure they're the same, but they may be. I was trying to see if I could really filter it through. So I'm going to respond in a scattered way. I think when we talk about personality traits. There are some people who have a tendency um, and it may have been what we meant when we talked about character flaws. I don't disagree with what's been said, but some people who maybe are more sensitive to criticism than others. Mm -hmm. I can see where that would position them in a place to be less authentic than they should be. And perhaps they need to overcome that. Or people who are, are prone to, um, you wouldn't find many clerics that are prone to shyness. Um, but I'm trying to think of another personality trait. Um, maybe prone to suggestibility. So, so that they're easily influenced by others. Um, I think those kinds of things can play into uh, a fall. And I'm not talking necessarily about a moral fall, but at least a back step from what we teach. And then on the other hand, I, I think there are characteristics, uh, uh, things that we've developed as habits that are perhaps, and certainly debatable, less innate, that could also predisposition disposition us for a fall. A reason I'm in the dilemma is I'm not sure, and well, let me back up and make an excuse for myself and disclaimer first. I think it's important for us to be confessional, which is another term I think for what you've said, to be ready to say I'm in the struggle. I'm not this yet. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one. But um, not only to say, I want you to do this, but at least for me to say, and I'm struggling at times to do this myself. So it's not that I have really accomplished it all. Um, but I think beyond that is to try to get ourselves and to help others to become um, so that they can handle the paradox of our saying, mm. um, we are, we don't personify Christ, but yet we're teaching and preaching for them to be incarnational because I don't think it's automatic. Those look like opposites if we don't help them to see that it, it is a almost, but it's not a, it's, it's a not yet. And it, it's the fact that we're not yet there is okay, that we're still struggling to become and to have more of Christ formed in us. I don't know if that seems too elusive or vague, but all of that is this disclaim that I'm not sure I'd say, take me first. I probably need to be there, <laughs> but if it's between my kids and me, for sure. It's between some other people, and I'm talking family, not even church. I'm not sure I'd be, I just, I'm just being honest, I'm not sure I'd be as heroic, um, and that I would see that as part of my clerical call, uh, even though I'm trying to be a vehicle to deliver uh, a message to others. That is a perfect message. So that perhaps more than anything shows where I need to grow. That's good. I want to drive that question a little bit further down the street. So my pastor is on here and I remember him saying when I was on staff when I was younger, he said, as a pastor, you have to be tough as iron, but gentle as velvet and sort of telling me as a young guy that I had to be willing to be assertive, but then at the same time be gentle. And I know Watson Jones tends to be a little more type A. 
and direct. And I know that about me. So I sometimes feel myself trying to find ways to add a corrector to find the, the velvet. My reason for stating that is you all have many years in preaching and pastoring and leading people. What are some things that preachers can do when they know they might have some personality trait? Uh, and I think you did well, uh, Dr. James, by differentiating the, the character and the personality trait, but who may have personality trait, i.e. they are too direct or they are not direct enough, passive aggressive, or uh, they can they can be perceived as abusive, like those kinds of things. What are some practical things you would tell us to say, all right, do this, do this, do this, to kind of guard against those things? Let me simply say that the greatest thing that a pastor can do in that position is to read and absolve himself in the Book of Romans. The Book of Romans is a fantastic presentation of grace. And when I came to an understanding of the book of Romans and Paul talks about in those first 11 chapters, all of the things that God has done for us to bestow his grace upon us. Then we get to chapter 12 and he says, now it's time for you to renew your mind, just to realize that you were born to the family that you were born to, afforded the opportunities that you've had and everything in your life has been a product of God's grace then how can we, how can I, I said to myself, be hard on other people or not gentle with other people or not display humility when everything I have, it came from God. I am a total product of God. That's all. It's not my education. It's not my ability. It's not my ingenuity. It's not my smarts. Everything has been handed to me by God. Therefore, you don't need me being hard on you or look down on you because you're a product of grace. So I would say to a pastor in that position, get to know and learn the book of Romans and it will help you out of that dilemma. Thank you. I'll jump in and, and say something that it may seem a little bit sexist. You need a wife. You know, it can't be um, worse than a bald headed man. <laughs> You know, you know, um, well, you didn't want me to say a bald headed woman telling her, you know, well, no. there are weaves everywhere, but I'm sorry, <laughs> you, you I'm can sorry, buy one. But, but my point is this is that all of us we know this in personalities, um, we all have blind spots, there's no question about it, and we all have issues that we have not dealt with. I found out that one of the strong protections and really supports. Uh, in ministry is that you have to have a wife, a husband, or somebody close enough that no matter who, how high you go, they can and will tell you the truth. Because uh, I can preach a great sermon and people get saved and all that, but my wife will at home will say, you know, the way you said so-and-so to so-and-so wasn't right. And I can't tell her I'm the bishop. Um, <laughs> you need You need somebody that loves you enough that, that can and will tell you and kind of coach you along that, you know, you need a, maybe you need a vacation, maybe you need some time off because you're being too abrasive or whatever. Somebody can, can, can catch you early on to help you to kind of mellow out some of those areas or maybe the flaws that you have. Because sometimes I think as the, the pastorate is a dangerous place. I think we don't see certain things. We need others from without, but they love us to uh, kind of cue us in and 
keep us on, on the right plane. I think that you must have some kind of, you know, people call it accountability a group or whatever, somebody who loves you enough that will help you to see what you may not see yourself. I, I so affirm that. And um, I've used the term myself. I wouldn't use it today. It, the, the interpretations would be much too risky uh, for me to say that. But I've said it in sharing with women in ministry uh, at a time when we weren't so concerned about being misconstrued and, and making a statement mm. about gender, that what really is needed. And even in um, not just an accountability sense, but even in a help sense, oh. um, someone will just say, you need to pack this, or did you check the weather, or did you do this? Uh, that goes on the verge of almost over-talking, over but at the same time raising our consciousness. So I think wife is very apropos in the traditional definition and a very broad definition of what wife means, whether one, and so I don't find that at all a sexist statement. Um, I think a couple things occur to me too. I think we need to make a real investment in people. You were saying, what would we say to young ministers? Um, at the same time, encourage them to maintain what's still a healthy de detachment, um, to know how to invest, whether it's congregants, parishioners, friendships, neighbors, whatever. Um, what What is the right level of investment, of hard investment, emotional mm. investment, physical investment in relationships? and yet maintain a level of detachment, which sounds cold, but I don't mean it that way, so that one can be emotionally healthy in crisis, so that one can still speak a truthful word um, in, in times of peril and sorrow. Um, there was something else I wanted to add to that. Um, the, the issue of accountability, and if I'm taking it away that you don't want us to go, then just pull me back. But yeah, one of the things I've found when uh, individuals are sometimes struggling with trying to regain um, their footing after a failure. And in, in some cases, it's a moral fail failure rather than a financial failure or, or, or even sometimes it's an addictive behavior um, that's, that may not be looked at as moral. Um, that they will pull someone in as an accountability figure and say, I'm accountable to this person during this stage of recovery. And that's usually someone that really doesn't either have authority over them to really pull their coattail, your part in that expression, or someone um, who doesn't have the courage to really um, insist that they follow a path of uh, repairing uh, personal relationships and thoughts and, mm -hmm. and their thinking. Um, and and so that all, that's just something that I wanted to mention because it's it bugs me. When, uh, and it's not exactly what we're talking about, but if one's going to be accountable to someone, make it someone who you truly will be accountable to, not just a good name out there that you're using as a, a, bull, a billboard to say, well, I'm in league with this individual, they're, they're okay. I have sometimes been uh, uh, invited to come in as an accountability person with people that I really didn't have a relationship with, but they mm -hmm. saw me as being safe outside of their social network and their, their social political network and someone that could not and would not, uh, but they were banking on the could not, uh, usurped their ministry while they needed to appear to be sitting aside, but they weren't really. And so that's something that um, has concerned me when it comes to um, being ethical, being honest, being accountable. If we're going to say we have that person, let's make it a real relationship. 
Well, that is a helpful answer, though, uh, Dr. James, because it was long. sorry, no, no, it's it's helpful because the next the next question deals with uh, I imagine that an answer to the next question deals with accountability partner or an, or an accountability person or something like that. But what do you say or what would you say uh, to pastors and preachers to help them avoid specifically those kinds of moral failures, i.e. sexual or addictive habits? Uh, that can that can really tank a ministry. What would you say to a preacher who's struggling there? Let me jump in to say that uh, I heard a poem, two natures lie within my breast. One is foul and one is blessed. One I love mm. and one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. I try to mm. share with all of the pastors that are kind of accountable to me is that you must feed your spirit. Your personal prayer time is so important. Uh, what you watch on television, one is feeding the flesh and one is feeding the spirit. If you feed your flesh more than you feed your spirit, then when it is time to make crucial decisions, your flesh will choose the way of the flesh. And that flesh is hard. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We all struggle and we've all given in and fallen. And all it takes is a few falls to discover that you really don't like falling. And we have to feed our spirit more and more. When the devil came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, and the devil kept throwing at him some carnal stuff, eat this, do that, Jesus kept throwing him scripture back. And when we are fed with scripture, and we know how to, you know, give scripture back, it helps us to maintain our spiritual sharpness and our spiritual focus. But it, I simply say that you have to feed your spirit more than you feed your flesh in order to win these battles. Anyone else? That's good, Pastor. You know, we all have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fill the uh, silence. Um, one of the things I think uh, globally that we have to really look at is that um, what Dr. Meeks just said and Dr. James just said, it, how do we, how, how are we assured that those things are in place? So I look to things, whether it's a denomination or uh, some kind of partnership, there has to be, I think, um, proactively things in place that are there, not for a crisis, but for ongoing development. And that means that there is a schedule that I'm meeting with certain people that I cannot um, X them out. I must hear them and they must have some freedom uh, to ask me questions. I, one of the guys that I was ordained with 40 some years ago, we have a pact and the pact is this. If you hear anything about me or you think anything about me, no matter what it is, you have a right to call me and say, hey, Horace, don't call me bishop. Don't call me pastor. Call me Horace. Hey, Horace, what's up? And when you answer me, don't answer with a scripture or with something like that. Tell me in simple language what's going on and let me question you. So my point is, is that I think that we have to, in this environment of the day, if we're, if we're wise, there must be safeguards in place that are part and parcel of how we live every day. Uh, not cumbersome, but at least on a regular basis. Otherwise, I think that we find ourselves entrenched uh, in what Dr. B said, these practices that we have that go, you know, nobody examines the bishop's life. 
But that's 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 a fatal flaw as far as I'm concerned. I'll, one last thing, this long question. In our organization, I was sent to a diocese. And for 13 years I was there, I was never asked to give a regular account of what was going on. No one uh, analyzed what I was doing. I gave a report that was very cursory, but I think that to safeguard leadership, we have to have structures in place that on a regular basis have a right to analyze who we are and where we are and keep us from some of these things that we all are prone to, whether it's you know money, sexual things, um, power issues, we all are prone. I think it has to be a part uh, of our, our environment. I'd like to accentuate what both uh, uh, my brothers have said, because it's so positive and it's so on point. Um, one, one of the things I saw this and I thought it was cute. I often have an offbeat sense of humor, so forgive me. But it was a little poster somebody sent me in text that said, there's a shortage of youth pastors because they're all bishops. Um, now I have a great regard for the Episcopacy, so please don't yes. think I'm saying that in terms of mockery. But the, the, the sometimes the desire to elevate or to be elevated and to avoid uh, adjudication and review um, can, can really overwhelm and, and, and take uh, too much of a place in a person's life. I'm reminded of um, in Proverbs 7 where there's a father who's speaking to his son mm -hmm. about wisdom and uses terms like uh, bind it. I think it's on your eyes or on your forehead, but it's very practical. Another part of that Proverbs 7 text, I haven't read it really recently, but it talks about uh, uh, being at the window, being at the lattice, and there's a young man in the street. And in one of the translations, it says that person is naive. Um, and so what I think that says to us is that there's a level of preparation that we need to have to make sure that we don't hit or that we try to avoid falling into these pitfalls. And very simple things beyond having our journey groups and our accountability partners, and this may sound uh, infantile in a way spiritually, but having things, if one is prone to overspend, maybe put a note in the checkbook, put a note on the, the credit card. If one is prone to get in wrong conversations, but to have reminders, concrete things, to not be naive or assume that we are exempt. Um, mm. And so whatever those, uh, those, those little things that we'd almost be embarrassed to share, whether it's a screensaver, whether it's a post-it note, that, that um, there are certain phone numbers in my, my contact list that when they come up, I have a note that says something about who's calling. Not a don't answer, but something that, that helps me to prepare my spirit for what I think the conversation will be. I don't know that that's a good example, but being, compromise has to be a decision that's made in advance to avoid compromise, rather. To avoid compromise, it can't be something we count on in the moment always, and at that second, we're gonna do the right thing. So to plan to do right and not compromise, we wanna do advanced preparation. And all of the, the spiritual uh, feeding our spirit and uh, mm -hmm. the breaking down the walls so that people can call us to task that both Dr. Smith and uh, Reverend Meeks have mentioned, I fully affirm. Watson, if I could jump in here right quick to uh, echo what Dr. James said. I had that same thought in mind about you can't find any youth pastors because they're all bishops. 
And uh, I think that the clergy today, especially young men must be, and young women, must be very careful about this self-elevation. Yeah. I, I've always thought that the title of a bishop or, or whatever titles come next, I've always thought those were things that other people conferred upon you, that in your denomination, that there were people who saw some leadership roles, some qualities, uh, something, and they ask you to take on a higher role. But today it seems like everybody who wants to become something, so somebody wants to become an archbishop, and I don't know if there are many of us who even know what half of that means, but I think that got, uh, young clerics today have to be very careful about conferring upon themselves titles. Then they have these elaborate ceremonies that come out of nowhere. And it's not as important to have the title. It's important to do the work. Right. And uh, I'm very concerned about where we are in the body, where people confer upon themselves a title. And, you know, and that works both ways. We've probably changed your subject, but I love it. Um, that not only the self-appointment, but then the other people who go along with it and who participate. And yes. I say again, I have great regard for the Episcopacy, but legitimacy is an important factor. And, and one is not just an Episcopal over one place or one church or two or three. Uh, and and it, it certainly cheapens uh, so much. But then others, sometimes we play into, we have complicity in yeah. what we see has been self-manipulation. And um, I agree. Wow. This is good. This is really good. I, I have I a question. To... No, it has yes, nothing to do with the topics, but I, and you can just shut me down and they won't invite me again. But what, you know, when you hear people say um, it's God first and then it's family or church or the pastor and whatever else, you know, uh, well, I didn't say that right. God and then spouse and family and then the church. Is there really a line at which perhaps our Catholic brothers and sisters have it right? That there is, in the genuine person with a pastoral call, a marriage to the church? Um, I, I, I kind of feel like we're not open about that and we say it in the right order, but I really think that a true shepherd has such a tight connection with, with the church until there is a level of pull um, we say what it is, but do we always live that? Isn't there perhaps a level of pull between um, a, almost like a weddedness to our ministries and to uh, whatever body we serve in, particularly at the senior level, as well as um, to those who we honor and respect as God has given us as spouses? And I think not being clear about that can get... Uh, pastors and ministers, not really thinking that through for what it is in their own lives can also lead to a downfall where there's competition between serving here or being available there or serving there or being available here. And I, I don't know many people that will say out loud um, that that marriage, that ministry marriage really competes with the real marriage. But I think they really kind of pull at each other in an honest moment. Okay, I'll, I'll go up in there. Uh, if you, if you look we're at, on our uh, own now. 
yeah, recent statistics, it's almost appalling where if you poll senior pastors' wives and ask them what is the uh, biggest negatives in your life, many of them, up to 40%, say that the church itself is a negative impact on my marriage. And I think that we have to look and see that we have not developed the right kind of not only pecking order, but understanding of balance. Uh, Dr. James, your, your your pastor, Bishop Jakes, I've known him for, for, for 30 years. He taught a, a pastoral conference 30 years ago. He may not remember that. And he really set us up as young pastors. He said, how many of you love your church? Well, I love my church. How many of y'all will do anything for your church? I'll do anything for them. He said, see, you committing adultery because the church is, is Jesus, is, is, is God's wife, not yours. In other words, we sometimes look at the church in such a way that we almost prostitute, excuse my language, the church in ourselves. And our families now are hazard. So there has to be a balance where I will, buy, he said, you will buy anything for your, for your wife, but you'll spend any time that, you, that they ask for, from your church at two in the morning to help somebody. So I think that there's an imbalance in understanding and I think we would help young pastors to make it clear about how do you deal with your family and not let them begin to resent your church. We need to, I think, create structures that teach that kind of balance. I don't know if, uh, and Dr. James, you're not off topic at all because that's one of the discussion questions. How do you balance ministry and family? So you were right on. I think that one of the, saving graces of my personal ministry, and I've seen it in the life of Dr. Horace Smith, is that our wives are committed to the ministry as well. And so rather than the ministry being something that I do, or it's my thing, it's something that we do as a group. And for a pastor uh, to be able to discuss with their spouse as much as possible about decisions that they have to make and include the spouse in things that are going on, the better it is because then they are spending time together and they are spending time together and they're talking through issues of the church. Uh, Susan Smith, not, everybody don't know this, Susan Smith built the new apostolic church. Hey, 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 I built the church. Been built without her. No, no, it couldn't have been built without her. She was there You're every right. day looking at patterns and talking to architects. Right. And they share in this ministry together. So it's not competing for his time or the home. The ministry is a blessing to husband and wife. And so to Absolutely. the extent they can share in it together. I'm not talking about a husband should go home or a wife should go home as a pastor and talk about people's personal business. That is not right. what I'm talking about. But there are corporate decisions that have to be made and that they can be made jointly. And I thank God that I've always been able to include my wife in those. So she never saw the church as a as a competing factor. Mm -hmm. It's something we get a chance to do together. And, and I think um, there are other statistics that complement what Dr. Smith has said in terms of sometimes first ladies are an extremely depressed group. Um, and not finding adequate vents uh, and expression or different things. And I would 
affirm again, that partnership is just mm -hmm. extremely important. Um, it's a little different in my case, being a woman in ministry. Um, I have supporters and then I have people that find that that's not biblical and that is what it is. Um, but it has been extremely important in a 52-year marriage uh, to work as partners. Um, and we dated four years before. It took four years for him to decide he was going to put up with me talking all the time. Um, but when I went through the Episcopal process, and people found this really strange. My husband's a very strong, uh, uh, successful person, so that, that helps. But he said... Um, I have no objection to this. He says, because my wife is so full of ideas and so busy and so on the ball. He says, I need her to have another spouse besides me. And this one I approve of. And so he said it facetiously. But over the years, I saw how that unraveled um, because he puts his all into my projects. and I try to put my all into his. And so what you've hit on, gentlemen, is maybe I hope we are on target and topic, but mm -hmm. it is so imperative Um to, to be able to try to keep the home intact um, because that leads a lot to uh, vacancies that I think the adversary tries to fill. Well, Dr. Uh, Dr. James and, and my, my co cohort, Dr. Meeks, I think we hit on something that's really important for young pastors. The, the word share has been left out of senior pastors' lives. My wife and I share in everything uh, Dr. Meeks, he won't admit this. She can play golf better than we can, but we, you know, we we share so much together that there is not competition. I think sometimes the senior pastor is so large in the family that the wife is totally overshadowed. But but Dr. Meeks said this too. Uh, my wife is astute in things that I'm weak at, things like the church structure, um, people, personnel. So when you share a life together, and I, and I encourage young men and young women, uh, make sure in your marriage that you mimic the church. You share together, whether it's playing sports or, or different interests or supporting each other, so that you really have a strong unit. I think the vulnerability uh, in senior pastors is that they become alienated from their spouse. They don't feel that they're connected that's a very dangerous situation, I think. There has to be much more sharing uh, of a life together. You want to get back in here, brother moderator? I think that's great. Okay, uh, we thought yeah, we left here. you. I think I froze for a second. Can you see me? Can you see me? Got you. Um, yeah, no, I, I, no, I think the conversation you guys are having is great because it, it does deal with a question that we that you guys have raised and answered as it relates to, you know, the life of the family life of a preacher and and how that impacts uh, the ministry. I, I want to kind of shift the gear a bit, turn a different corner, and I want to talk a little bit about finance. Um, one of the things that young adults say, if, saw it coming, saw it coming, that, a young, coming. that young adults often say uh, about churches, and it bothers me as a pastor, but I hear it often that we as pastors and churches take money and we only spend it on ourselves or the church. And they always use this, they use this argument that we never do anything for the community and, and all of those things. I know that that's not true, uh, but I wanna hear from you guys. What are some things that you have done as pastors and preachers to, to counter that narrative, to, to show that one, it's, it's a false narrative, but to, to counter it and show something different? 
let me jump in real quick to say uh close it out on our last conversation uh because we dealt a lot with the wife and not with the children i think it's very important that a pastor not miss events in his or her child's life as well uh baseball games football games whatever your child is involved in you want to be there equally you don't want your child growing up resenting the church because my father never could come to a baseball game or a basketball game. So I just want to throw that in about children. As it relates to finances and as it relates to community outreach, it's very simple. If a church sees its, if a group of young people sees its church involved in the community and is involved in the community all the time, we will never get these kind of questions. If only at Christmas or Thanksgiving, they see us giving baskets to a few needy people, and those needy people happen to be members of our church, then you got a problem. I think that we have to do, the gospel begins in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. A church uh, that's heavily involved in community outreach will never have any problem with this question. And I don't even have the time to tell you the things that we've done in our community. We've given out Bibles to every home in our community. We've gone door to door in our community asking people, what are your needs? And we come back the next week with the items that they requested. We adopted over a hundred blocks in our community. We have corner prayer in our community. We adopted eight or nine schools in the community. And so the church that's involved or that's heavily involved in community outreach, they see where their money is going and they love yeah. the fact that the money is going to the community. Thank you, Pastor. I couldn't hear Dr. Daniel. Y'all hear James, that? I think you might have muted yourself. Sorry, I was adjusting my light and took the uh, mic off, but trying to adjust the light. But um, I think what you've hit on uh, Reverend Meeks is the importance of marketing, making it visible, articulating what's being done. Uh, I'm not a senior pastor now, but I, I think it's okay to say that where I happen to be serving now, um, that the leadership is a master in terms of getting the word out and using platforms to make it clear what's being done, whether it's servicing uh, displaced homemakers or re-entry for uh, those who have been incarcerated and a litany of other youth and senior and all kinds of programs. Um, I think another piece of that, in addition to what we know is being done all the time, the food and the building homes and houses and communities, is perhaps tampering with something that's a little more risky. And that is, I was so glad to hear involving the church in the outreach. So I think that's the one piece of it, mm -hmm. the biggest piece. But sometimes there might be an opportunity to empower laity and so that we have actually lay-driven um, projects where the church begins to invest. And in, it wasn't a church department. It didn't grow out of one of our departments, but it's a, a needful effort that came out of a burden and a heart of someone in the church that where the church begins to invest uh, in that kind of activity as well. Um, I don't know that we want to do that. That brings a lot with it, but I can see where that would certainly help to uh, refute the naysayers. Because I think it's obvious that churches do give and serve and provide. And still there are those voices that say it's not happening. Uh, when I grew up, 
there were uh, public accountings of everyone's uh, offerings and their giving. Uh, maybe it was done more than needed to be. Uh, it was no less than on a quarterly basis. So it wasn't just see what we've done, but here's the financial reports. So I think real financial meetings and real business meetings uh, with those who are uh, that should be in those meetings are an important part of accountability in terms of finances. Well, get any amens on that. Well, I'm, I I agree with Amen. those those things okay. that have been said. I think the church has been a little bit behind in understanding the importance of money in general. I think that we have been so beat down by the uh, fear that folk will think we're money mongers that we have not emphasized financial stewardship and accountability. Because I think that the church has to show that it uses its finances to build the community and it does it on a regular basis. And, and, and one thing I think that was more pervasive uh, among the critics is that the, the, the church being in disrepair and the pastor driving a Mercedes. I think that we, we, we have to also be aware of our own sensitivity that the church and the community are built and and, and that's in distinction from the pastor living a lifestyle that oftentimes the membership cannot even relate to. So I think that there has to be a better teaching on our part, appreciation of uh, stewardship, investment, that people come to church, you come to raise them up to be better stewards, to have um, a much better financial accountability. And the part that James talked about, in our church, we have an independent audit every single year. And the, and the membership knows that. Every nickel that is accounted for, we know where it goes and we publish that. So I think it's important for us in this day of scrutiny to make sure that our finances are intact, but also that the church teaches uh, good stewardship and will practice, uh, I think, community investment uh, in the way that Dr. Meeks talked about and others. And I think that you'll, you'll then see that young people will have greater confidence in what we do with the money that we raise. Two things, Watson, if I could jump in real quick to say that for the first five years of our church, the Salem Church, we did not have a building of our own. And so we rented spaces for the first five years. I would not drive a new car. I refused to drive a new car and the church didn't have a building. Uh, like Dr. Smith said about the Mercedes and all of that sent such a bad signal. It just sends a bad sign, and I just refused to do it. Uh, it was not until one night I was in a revival, and my car caught on fire in the parking lot, and our deacons were embarrassed that I had to identify that as my car until I ended up getting a halfway decent car. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should ride around as a pauper, but I'm saying that you should be very careful about the appearance that you're giving off Sometimes a pastor and his wife, they could be in, you know, a church of 25 or 30 people and addressing really, really way up the chain and driving way up the chain. That doesn't say a whole lot to people that you're trying to attract. Number two, I started pastoring at 23. I am now 65. I do wish that the conversation about finances could have been held when I was 23. And so that I could have been warned about the importance of your personal finances as it relates to the fact that you're going to get 65 one day 
And if you're in a church that does not have an aggressive retirement plan, you're going to wish you had put aside some money. And so I say to pastors all the time that the most important thing as it relates to personal finances is that you start living as if 75 and 80 is coming. You're going to be in good health and you're not going to be pastoring. And what do you do then? And so I would say to all pastors, get you a good financial planner and stick with that plan as it relates to personal finances. Oh, that is so good. That is so, so good. I remember, I'm sorry about the light in this room. There are no shades on the window. Being told at a young age, you're not going to always want to get on planes. You're not going to always want to get red eyes and and do services nine, you know, not going to be proud of speaking nine (laughs) times a week or 11 times a week. And I thought, I'll always want to do this. I, I love this. And now I'm like, is it virtual? Let's talk about virtual. But that that advanced knowledge just means so much. And I, I'm just glad to that, that you mentioned that. Um, I, I could also relate to having the deacons tell me to park my car around the corner because it didn't invite <laughs> people to the church because it looked too bad. Um, but, but I also, on the other end, and I have no problem swinging from one side to the other, um, I was bivocational. Um, and some people object to that. But uh, when our uh, oldest son graduated high school and went away to college, and he was supposed to come home every weekend for church, and he had a drive, we got him a little Honda. I mean, it was a very cheap little car, but it was a little car, but it was red. That's all he cared about. But that really, we had members that left because they said, you're setting a bad example by getting a car. Now, this was a long time ago. My kids are almost the age of some of you. Um, But you're setting a bad example by getting your children a car coming out of high school. And I bristled up then and now um, because I felt it was defensible. It wasn't out of church funds. And so I think there's also the place where one can do something out of integrity and earnestness and through their own sacrifice and yet be pressured into not feeling free to enjoy what they should enjoy as a result of their own labor. Right. Um, I, I, I had a particular mm-hmm. a consciousness. Um, I won't even tell you all my embarrassing stories about finances um, because the inequities that happen with females are amazing yeah. uh, in ministry. But uh, I had a little offering, but it was important. It was less than $20. And I think I had ministered about a three nights or four nights. And my mother is who I traveled with. Um, and I misplaced it. And she lit into me. She's going to be with the Lord and said, that's not money you went down the street and earned. You didn't check in the clock at work. The saints gave that to you. It's sacrifice. And I hear her, if I get $5 or $50 or 500 now, this money came through some extension of the body of Christ. It's different than what you earned by teaching a class or giving a lecture. So whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it did force me into a kind of stewardship and guardianship over the message that was seen. She said, how dare you lose and misplace something that came through there? So um, a side story, but I think I affirm all that you say. Meanwhile, I'm gonna keep trying to work and get the light out of my face. I understand. Pastor, you about to say something? Yeah, I, oh, I no. thought that Dr. Mitchell was about to say something. I want I want to just piggyback on what was said. Um, 
you know, we're, we're facing issues now of older pastors, and Dr. Meeks kind of pointed to this too, that should retire but can't. I think the help of the church is that young pastors need to understand what Dr. Meeks said. You can start to practice good stewardship in your personal life early on. And if you do that right now in our church, you know, uh, I can re I could have retired eight years ago and my retirement was totally paid up by the church. That gives me, uh, I think, an objectivity about even succession because I'm not trying to make a dollar every week uh, because we did it long term. So young pastors, you need to understand the balance in your personal life can also enhance the health of the church. The other piece, uh, in contradiction to what uh, uh, Dr. James said, uh, e even the issue of honorarium and whatever, sometimes the church needs a course in how to take care of pastors and take care of evangelists because we don't do we don't do them right. And 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 we and, you know we're taught you just preach you know and you do it for free. No, you don't. The workman is worthy of their hire. There's got to be a balance. And I think that the whole issue of money in the church has been neglected. We need to develop, I think, a much, much better robust from personal finances to investments to how the church treats uh, women and men who are preaching to them in a different way. If we don't do that, it's hard to have a church that you can say, I want the world to see how to do it right. Money, I think, is the God of this world. And we've been almost shamed to deal with money in the proper way. We need, yeah. we need courses on money. And I want to say one more thing on this, if I may. And going along the same stream is I think we want to be aware of how the media has selected individual ministries or pastors and highlighted the, some image or model of what they see. And it may be, I'm not judging it one way or the other, as extravagance or un, uh, unjustified lavishness. I don't know, so I can't say whether it is or not. But I think we must be aware, in my opinion, that the media has, I think, intentionally and systematically worked to harm the image of particularly the African-American church or the black church and its leadership. So I think we have to be very aware of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will say, Watson, that uh, as it relates to honorariums, uh, a young preacher should just preach and accept, I think, whatever, because it will balance out. Because I was young and preaching. I preached anywhere. I preached everywhere. I just wanted the opportunity to That's preach. Right. And, and, and I trusted God to take care of me. And those honorariums were not that good. And I, I often walked away thinking, that I deserved much more, but I was just happy for the chance to preach. Today, I preach in places, I look at the honorarium check and I walk away saying, now they gave me way too much <laughs> for, <laughs> for the sermon that I just preached. Uh, but long, longevity, sustainability and experience will get you much more than yeah. you will in your younger days. You just have to know it, go along with the flow and just thank God for every preaching opportunity. That's good. Let me let, let me balance that, uh, Pastor Meeks. I agree. Uh, here's the extreme uh, other side of that: is that preachers now, if you want them to come, some of them will send you 
a 15 page contract, contract. <laughs> how many thousands you must give them, what kind of hotel, five star, how many square feet. And I think that is the, the opposite of what we, we need more balance in the whole issue of, of in the church, preaching and teaching and finances. And there is an entourage and maybe some of them need first class. I mean, we didn't grow up. I'm, I'm now putting you in my generation, so forgive me. But we, we were, you know, taught you go in and things are not right. You shake the dust off and you just keep going. Uh, our, and some of that was, was I think, what Reverend Meeks is talking about. Know what our love is for. Know yeah. where our call is for. And in reality, the dollars and the service are not a one-to-one correspondence yeah. any way it goes. I think when we really, really, I, I call it like this, when I really pour my heart into a lesson or a sermon, which I, I'm not really a preacher anymore, um, I always felt like, you know, we called it the virtue went out, but to put it kind of crudely, it was a level of sacrifice and a little bit of dying, maybe a nano amount, but yeah. just a, li a little bit that I'll never get back. I left behind that sacred desk. Um, wow. and, and to me, there's no... It was a little bit of my life, maybe a small up. I was, and so that I'll never get back. So it's not recoupable in dollars or recoverable. I might use the word wrong, but can't get it back in dollars and cents. And so giving that sense of a higher call that you're talking about, uh, Pastor Meeks, is just so, so vital. Amen. And now you're helping me to feel better about all the people that gave me envelopes and said, we can't pay you. But here's a little something to say. We <laughs> so thank you. Absolutely. Well, it's time to wrap this up. Let me ask you this. Uh, no real question here, but any final thoughts? Take a few seconds. Give any final thoughts before we bring this to bring this to a close. Well, I'll, I'll close with this saying this, that uh, you mentioned this. We can't find enough youth pastors. Uh, I, I think that we who are senior and who have been blessed the Lord should work hard together to try to create an environment for young uh, pastors. Um the, the church needs young people involved early on. And I hope that these kind of conversations Watson, you put on would help us to see that there is so much to do in pastoring that we'll be much more collegial with each other uh, across denominations and so forth, because we need to raise up young people. We're, uh, we're at the end of our ministry, but we can add so much in our experience. And so thank you for just having me a part. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I also would like to express my appreciation. And I think as a, um, one of the last thoughts I'd like to leave is to remind people that pastoring and ministry is not an entitlement, um, that it is indeed uh, one of the grace gifts that is given and shared mm -hmm. with us. I also would like to see pastors think in terms of not always pulpit ministry, that there are many areas of viability for service Many could go into broadcasting, uh, particularly I'm talking pre-pandemic where now everybody is broadcasting. Um, but there are other viable means of ministry and service, uh, and it's not a one track. I think that would lower frustration, and I think it would ease succession, um, succession mm. dilemmas, because it's not just this or nothing. It's that I must die in my robe with a mic in my hand. Um, so awesome. I, th those are two of the things. I have lots of other small things, but we'll save them for the next time if you let me. Thank you. I would simply say, 
I would simply say expose yourself to as much information like this as you possibly can with Good. seasoned individuals who've done what you are trying to do. And then I would say spend as much time with God as you possibly can because it's so important to hear his voice with so many voices out here now and so many different directions we can choose. We want to choose the way of the Lord and the only way to know his voice is by spending time with him. Excellent. And learn to laugh. Learn learn to, to enjoy. Have some humor. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pastor Meeks. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Dr. James. Thank you guys so much for having uh, taking time for our conversation. And uh, is there a way that people could reach you if they got questions, social media tags or anything like that? Call the call the church. I, I, we 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 have we all have staffs that will answer the phone and get back to you because I think the people on this call I know myself we are committed to uh, young ministries and young ministers and we'll do all we can to encourage them. We're easy to find. I have social media platforms, but I'm not as active on them since I don't do the Wednesday nights during the pandemic because they were devoted to that ministry. So that's at Dr. Cynthia James. But probably best is just C. James at TV Jakes. And I'll get that email. And mine would be D. Rogers at sbcoc.org. That's D. Rogers at sbcoc.org. Org. As mm -hmm. Dr. Smith said, we have people and staff who work with us, and it is impossible to get sometimes to us directly, and we only give other people's information to reach us because we don't want anything to fall through the cracks. It's not right. being a big shot. It's not being uh, not accessible. It's making sure that your information that you want it gets back to you. And so drogers at sbcoc.org. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for watching everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.